0: The following content is derived from the equip ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. Join us the next six weeks as we work through balancing the tensions of being primarily a citizen of heaven while also physically being a citizen of earth. We'll start by tearing down our existing and often worldly thought process around politics and building up a biblical perspective of the relationship between the church and the public square. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Alrighty, well welcome everybody to week five of The Church and Politics. Uh, This is the fifth of six weeks, and this is the last week that I kind of have organized formally what I'm going to present. So next week is just Q&A just Q&A. It might be the most interesting week of all. Who knows? It, it certainly depends on what kind of questions you come with or you send. And so, um, Joseph, you put that, that number up for everybody. I know we've put it up each week. It doesn't stay up, but this is really the last opportunity. So, if you have any questions, uh, I'd like to make, like, Sunday the deadline. So, Uh, if you want to text them any question to that number, uh, and then I've got the ones that have already been sent and that's what I'm going to be looking to prepare, uh, for this week. Uh, and so, um, you can also come and ask questions next Wednesday. Uh, certainly fine with that. I just kind of know that I will do a better job answering them if you text them now, um, and so, you know, having time to prepare and think about things is always a, an advantage um, on, on that count. So, um, but before we jump in tonight, um, let's, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time together. Lord, we come to you tonight, um, Lord, just with humility and and love in our hearts, Lord, love that was put there by you, Lord, love that has come upon us because you love us first. Lord, we only love you because you love us. And Lord, that love that you have for us through Jesus is also the love that we love one another with and the love that we turn towards our neighbor and our country and our nation and and even to the ends of the earth as we love uh, uh, people everywhere. Um, Lord, I pray that love would prevail. Lord, I pray it would prevail here among your people at this church, and um, Lord, I pray also that truth would prevail. Lord, we know that love and truth and grace are not in conflict with one another, and so Lord, I pray that you would help us as we continue studying these themes, Lord, to find that balance, Lord, so that we would be faithful to Jesus. First and foremost, before we worry about loyalty to anything else, Lord, may we be loyal to Jesus, because it is only when we are loyal to Him that we can be loyal properly anywhere else. Uh, Lord, help us tonight, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight we are going to talk about practically what does it all look like? How do we put it all together? How can we now be or how can I be a political Christian? Um, we've gone through principles. We've talked about um, kind of the first week, if you'll remember, was a critique uh, of, of the way that it usually happens in our nation. Uh, the second week, we talked about the, the role of government and, and why God ordained government in the world and why government exists. The third week, we talked about the church and uniquely how the church is political. Uh, Without it trying to be so, it just is. It's the way Jesus made it. Um, And then last week, we talked about religious liberty and our commitment to religious liberty and why we are committed to religious liberty Um, in scripture. Well well, tonight, as I mentioned, is going to be the most practical of them all. We've talked a lot about theories and we've talked a lot about principles and um, tonight we're going to kind of lay out some things that help us figure out what to do next. What does it look like now to live? And I want to start off with, I'm just going to present the lay of the land. And So Joseph, you can turn to the next slide. Um, On January 6th, 2021, a riotous mob breached the wall of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in an effort to prevent Congress from formally certifying the results of the presidential election. Uh, This mob believed that the election had been stolen, and they intended to keep Donald Trump in office as president of the United States because they believe that the election was unfair because Donald Trump told them that the election was unfair and that he he did not indeed really lose it. 5 people lost their lives that day. 138 police officers sustained injuries of various degrees. Four of those 138 police officers died by suicide within the following seven months after the riots. The mob consisted of, of more than 2,000 people. They vandalized and looted. They assaulted police. They were looking for elected representatives, particularly those on the left and those who would not go along with this plan. They chanted, hang Mike Pence, the vice president at the time, and erected gallows with a noose for the purpose because Pence refused to go along with outgoing President Trump's scheme to overturn the results of the election. Many of the rioters wore t-shirts with Christian imagery or carried crosses. Now obviously... Horrendous things throughout history have been done in the name of Christianity. Just because someone is wearing a t-shirt or carrying a cross, that does not make them a Christian, right? However, in our nation in particular, at least since the 1970s, and you can trace these themes all the way back to the beginning of our nation there's often been a widespread assumption that one of the particular parties in, the, in our nation represents Christianity and the other one doesn't. And since the 1970s, the widespread assumption in our culture going back to, to, to that time, when, and remember what happened in the 1970s, you have the rise of the moral majority and the whole plan where President Reagan was elected and served uh, two terms during the 80s. The assumption has been that the Republican Party is the Christian Party and that the Democratic Party opposes Christian values in every conceivable way. And whatever you think about that, whatever you think about that historically, I wasn't alive in the 70s. Some of you remember it, firsthand knowledge. I wasn't old enough to pay attention in the 80s. Started noticing things around the 90s is kind of when my personal experience comes into play. I I believe that there's some level of validity to, to some of this, by the way. But I want to share with you a few of the headlines that I have read in just the last three weeks. You can see them up there. Trump indicted in porn star hush money case. Politician jokes about skipping premarital sex to attend prayer breakfast. Video appears to show GOP representative Lauren Boebert being fondled by her date during Beetlejuice performance. Married South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski have been having years-long clandestine affair. And so we read those headlines, and those are all validated stories. And we can read those headlines and say, oh, yeah, but that's the left, and those headlines aren't, those fake news. I don't think that's true in this case. But I want to ask you this question. Do those headlines sound like a Christian political party to you? And that's just the past few weeks. So we have to, as Christians, wrestle with some really big questions when we read things like that. We have to ask ourselves, how in the world did the party that's supposed to represent the interest of Bible-believing, moral, conservative Christians, how did we get to the point where we have elected people that those headlines are talking about? Because every single one of those headlines is about an elected GOP Republican figure. Every one of them. Might I ask you to ask yourself Did we get here when we settled upon a three time serial adulterer who cheated on his third wife with a porn star and who definitionally is not a Christian because when he's been asked about it, he repeatedly says that he has never had a need to repent of anything in his life. And yet we act like and want to say that he is our hero, our representative, the one who is going to bring our country back to the way it's supposed to be. I read a political commentator this week who wrote a blog post about this and everything that's been happening. I'm just going to quote it at length here at the beginning. He said I do not think it is a coincidence at all that after so many evangelicals decided they needed Trump to save them from the left, they got Roe versus Wade repealed and 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 we got drag queen story hour even into the military. We got abortion referenda in multiple states that not only passed but expanded abortion until birth. We got protections for transgenderism enshrined in the Constitution by judicial fiat, led by a Trump-appointed Supreme Court justice. That savior of the from the left has now waffled on whether men can become women, has declared Democrats will be happy with his abortion compromise that amounts to abortion on demand, has criticized fetal heartbeat bans, and his son has defended Anheuser-Busch while it turns out the political savior owned a massive pile of stock in the company President Trump was interviewed this past week about Governor DeSantis who's going to be running against him Governor DeSantis led a ban of abortion in the state of Florida after six weeks of pregnancy and President Trump said about that ban that it is I quote, a terrible thing and a terrible mistake How did we get here? See, these are the real level questions that you guys really want to talk about this whole time, isn't it? (laughs) Like, what what are we doing? You want to change the next slide, Joseph? What's going on is identity politics, and it's happening on both sides. Tobias Kramer, in his book, and that's the, the cover of the book, it's called The Godless Crusade, it's a great, it's really insightful. I recommend it. I'm going to read some quotes from the book, so I'll come back and explain it, but kind of bear with me while I read a couple of lengthy quotes. He says that the rise of right-wing populism, so that's what's happening with the whole movement in support of Donald Trump, the, the appeal to the masses, that's what populism is. It says the rise of right-wing populism in references to religion in the West— are not driven by a resurgence of conservative religiosity, but by the emergence of a new social cleavage centered on secular identity politics. So in other words, don't think that because there are conservatives quote-unquote being elected, and, and they are talking using Christian imagery, that this represents a surge in more religion in our culture. He says it doesn't. Right-wing populists are using Christian symbols and language as insignia of a culturalized Christianism, a symbol of whiteness and Western civilization directed against Islam and immigration that is interchangeable with Viking veneer, neo-pagan symbols, and even secularism, but often increasingly disassociated from Christian beliefs, values, and institutions. Last quote. Rather than embracing Christianity as a faith, right-wing populists in the United States, Germany, and France are politicizing Christianity as a secularized identity marker to mobilize voters in the context of a new social cleavage centered around the question of identity and around a new wave of right-wing identity politics. What does that mean? Well, this is his whole book in a nutshell. He says, what you have going on right now is identity politics on the left. And we've all seen it. We usually, when you hear identity politics, we immediately think the left, right? That's the Democrats, the liberals, the progressives. What is identity politics? Identity politics is politics based on identity, race, gender, sexual orientation. Identity politics seeks to grant favor to certain groups above others. And so we want to prize these minorities or these people who, you know, practice transgenderism or these people who have a sexual orientation. We want to prioritize them above everyone else. Well, in response to that left identity politics, there is now a right identity politics that says, why are we favoring those people? We should instead be favoring our people. We need to favor our people. We're the ones who have been here the whole time. The whole movement in our nation right now between the left and the right is two different versions of identity politics, and they are both just as secular as the other. One of them happens to use Christian imagery and, and gives lip service to Christian values. The other one left that a long time ago. I was on Twitter this week, and I saw there's a panel, and I'm going to get to this a little bit later, there's a new movement about called Christian Nationalism. And I'll, I'll define that for you a little bit later, but it's a lot of these people who are, who are big time pushing this kind of call to Christendom that we need to institute Christianity in government. We need to take over government for our purposes and have our agendas promoted through government. And, and there were four different leaders on this panel. And they're all, what's, what's so fascinating to me is one of them is a, was a, just a year ago an intern for President Moeller. One of them is, has written a huge book that everybody's talking about, um, about politics and Christianity. And there was, a, there was another one of them that I didn't even really know who he was, but they, they asked them, you know, listener question, is it wrong for Christians to marry outside of their race? How quickly would it take you to answer that question? Yeah. Like, would you even need any time? You just, absolutely not. It's not wrong. How could it be wrong? Point to one thing in the scriptures that would lead us to say that it's wrong. Silence. Silence. I'm talking Seconds, which felt like hours of them not wanting to answer that question live on an internet forum. Why don't they want to answer that question? Because they are participating in identity politics just like the people on the left, only their identity is white Christians. It's nationalism. It's preserving our way. It's our way, not your way a Christian response to all of this? You know, because that's the next question. You can flip to the next slide. What does a Christian response to identity politics look like? Well, you can go back to the 1960s if you want to see what a Christian response looks like. And I bring up Martin Luther King Jr., not because he was a perfect human being. He was flawed. He had things in his theology that I would... I would criticize. He had things in his personal life that I would criticize. And so when we when I talk about this, I'm not lifting him up as some flawless figure. But from a Christian perspective, when he talked about his dream and when he talked about what it should look like in a nation for people of different races and cultures to live together it was a Christian vision. It was consistent with the gospel. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's Christianity. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. How can that happen? Because they have forgiven each other. And so you have the left who's constantly saying, you'll ne- because you're white, you're always racist and you'll never be able to get over these grievances. That's foolish and wrong. But you have now on the right the response to that, which is just as foolish and wrong, which is saying, we're not going to prize you, we're going to prize us. We want our identity to be favored. Our views toward other people as Christians must be shaped by the gospel, not by Partisan politics. We can't let our views of human beings be shaped by narratives and headlines and whoever's trying to get our money or get our votes. We go back to the Bible. And what does the Bible teach us? When we look at other human beings, what are we supposed to see? We are supposed to see human beings created in the image of God. Male and female in the image of God. All races, all peoples carry His image. And therefore, all races, all peoples, all cultures have inherent worth and dignity. We have to believe that. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. used to preach. That's what got him killed. And the people who backed him have forsaken that whole message. The reality of God choosing to redeem people from all nations and make them equal sons and daughters through Christ and his kingdom, that reality has to shape the way we look at other people. So where do we go from here? And here is, you know, that was just me, I guess, getting on my soapbox again about the mess that we've made. But I feel responsible for it. You know, I don't know if you do, but I think evangelical Christians like us have played a part in building what we're, what we're doing right now. We have made this bed. Now we have to lay in it. And so what do we do? We're here in this little church, right? In, in little old Buckner, Kentucky you know change starts small and i believe with all my heart that if we as a little church can reclaim what it means to be political uh, to be christians who are political then then who knows what god can do with that and so i have eight things eight things that i want to argue that we should be doing and there and there's more i mean i'm sure i could have thought of 30 things but Eight things that I kind of worked on narrowing down that summarize what I think we can start doing right now. Here's the first one The political Christian must both subvert governing authorities and submit to governing authorities. Now, you might look at that and think those are two different words. That that seems contradictory. If we're subverting governing authorities, how are we also submitting to governing authorities? Well, where do we find cues for what this looks like in the Bible? So if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start with subvert. How do we subvert governing authorities? Well, let's see how Paul and Silas did it. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, going to go through verse 8. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they're in these Greek cities. They go to a synagogue of the Jews because the Jews were living amongst the Greek people. And Paul went in, as was his custom. This is what Paul would always do. He would find the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What's Paul doing? He's preaching the gospel. That's it. But look at their response. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul didn't say one word about overthrowing Caesar. He didn't say one word about, hey, go break the laws. Don't don't listen to the governing authorities. He didn't say anything about that. What did he do? He went into the synagogue and he preached the gospel. And look at how they respond to it. They interpret it as a political message. Do you know why they interpreted it as a political message? Because it is a political message because Paul is saying there is a king above your king. (laughs) There is a king that you all owe allegiance to who is higher than the Caesar, who is higher than the most powerful man on the face of the earth right now. This man is higher than him, and you owe allegiance to him. And they said, these men are turning the world upside down with this message. This Imagery, the words used here for turn the world upside down, communicate ideas of subverting, agitating, overthrowing, or disturbing. How does the message of the gospel turn the world upside down? Because it offers a competing scheme, a different story, a contradictory kingdom, an alternative way of life. We follow Jesus, and you know this, church, because we talk about all the time. When we follow Jesus, we're not just saying, yeah, I get to go to heaven when I die. We're saying, no, I have a king, and my life is different now. There's a whole new way of being a human being in Jesus Christ. And that is threatening to people. Listen, when Christianity is undiluted, when it's not watered down, when it's believed and preached the way Paul and Silas do here, governing authorities will respond by being offended. It's always happened. The problem and the reason why we've been at peace with governing authorities for so long is because our message has been too long watered down and diluted. Compromised. Patrick Schreiner, who wrote a book called Political Gospel, says Paul was not willing to be thrown into prison so people could have organic relationships and sip white chocolate mochas together. He was on a mission to form a new body politic, he was making a new government in the church. The church is where we go for political cues. This is our number one political allegiance. This is where we go first and foremost to hear God's word, to get directions from our king. Did you know that the word church in the Bible is ecclesia, and that's made up of two Greek words, and when you put them together, it means to call out of, to call out of. And that's what the church is. We have been called out of. Do you see how that, how that causes this friction? We, we had an ultimate allegiance in the world, but we've been called out of the world around Jesus together in the church. we now are part of a different alternative community. When we worship together, listen, when we worship together, it is a political act. I know that sounds crazy. We don't usually use political in that way, but let me make my case. What do we do when we gather? We, we recount our origin story. <laughs> what do we do in this country on the 4th of July? All right, we remember our independence. We, maybe if you're historical, maybe you read the Declaration of Independence. Maybe you, you watch a patriotic movie. Maybe you go to a barbecue. Maybe you watch The Patriot with Mel Gibson. It's a great movie. What are we doing when we gather on Sunday? We are remembering our origin story. Our origin story is what Jesus did. It's Jesus's life. It's his death death, it's his resurrection, it's his ascension, it's his promised return. What he did is what founded us. We remember that together every single week, every single Lord's Day when we gather. When we gather, we are also reinforcing our identity and reminding each other that our ultimate allegiance is Jesus. We say Jesus is Lord. We sing songs that say Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that he is Lord over all. We do that every week. We declare our allegiance, our loyalty to one king and one king only. We have our own law. Some of us don't like the word law, but it's a fine word. The Bible law is often just a synonym for word and, and revelation and scripture. Read Psalm 119. And this is the law. This is what God has given us, his instruction to us on how to live, on how to do everything, on how to think about everything we have the law book. We gather around it every week. We have our own rituals. You know, when I was in elementary school every day, I don't even think they do this in schools anymore, but every day we would stand up and put our hand on our heart and and look at the flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance every single morning. We have our own Pledge of Allegiance. It's called Baptism. What do we pledge when we are baptized? We say, Jesus is Lord. I am committing my life to Jesus, to following Jesus for the rest of my life. We, we have the Lord's Supper, which is the continuing, continual rite, ritual. Communicating our values. And then, think about this. On top of all that, we have been charged by our King to extend His reign To the ends of the earth, to go and conquer by preaching the gospel so that the nations believe and so that more and more people join this political movement. That's subversion. How do you subvert the government of this world? You subvert the government by digging into life in your church, by worshiping, by pursuing the mission. By remembering that our first loyalty above everything else is Christ and and his kingdom. And we remember that together. But a lot of us have that backwards. I read an article recently by Jeremy Walker. And he asked this question in the article. He says, what is the greater grief? A compromised church or a compromised nation? Which more afflicts the heart of God's people, a morally declining country or a spiritually deceased congregation? And I think, honestly, a lot of people like us would conclude that we're more heartbroken over a morally corrupt nation than a morally corrupt church. And I think that's a tragedy. But we're not only... We're not only subverting, we're also submitting. And so if you just flip over to the next book, Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, I'm going to read this, get my clock out. Um, chapter 13, one, one through seven, we've looked at this text already, but it's such a foundational passage that we've got to, we've got to go here. When we're, when we're trying to get practical, we've got to go here and, and look at what he says. Let every person remember, this is a letter to the church. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. "'Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? "'Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval.'" pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed and then one more passage I want to read first peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 it's always cool when you can get two apostles saying the same thing right not that One wasn't enough, but we get Peter's perspective on the matter. First Peter 2, 13 through 17, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's got a missional bent to his call. And look what he says in verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Live as people who are free. Both of these passages communicate the same thing. As Christians living in the world, we are called to submit to governing authorities because we recognize that governing authorities have been put there by God for a purpose. The purpose of government is, as we've mentioned before, is to uphold justice, to preserve life. And the, the mission of the church is tied to that, right? If there's chaos everywhere, then the church can't, can't fulfill its mission. And so there's a, there's a servant role there. And so when we put all this together, when we talk about subversion, and then we talk about submission, what we recognize is that our subversion should never lead to sin. We don't subvert the government by disobeying it. We subvert the government by being loyal to Christ. Peter calls Christians to endure hardship for doing good. There is nothing Christian about sinning against government in our attempts to subvert it. We seek to be peaceable. So so we get to issues like, we say we hate abortion. And we should. We advocate for life. But we don't blow up abortion clinics. Right? Our, Our opposition is in obedience to the law. We don't lie to get our favorite candidates elected. Now, there are times when rebellion may be called for. I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul would say that this was absolute. Obviously, if the government's asking you to do something unjust, we cannot submit to it. And the apostles modeled this for us as well, didn't they? We must obey God rather than man but that's another issue. I'm not going to get into the weeds of when we're allowed to rebel against the government. The the standard posture is submission, and our subversion comes from digging in and being loyal to Jesus above everything else. Here's the second thing. Advocate energetically for policies and politicians who will uphold biblical justice and truth. And in our country, where we get to vote on who our government is, that's where we vote. We vote for, for policies and for politicians who will represent biblical truth, biblical justice, righteousness, life, all of the things that we value. Uniquely, we live in a democratic republic. I mean, I imagine when Paul and Peter are writing these passages They couldn't have even imagined what we experience right now. They had an emperor who was absolute king over everything. We're a part of it now. In our nation, we have freedom of speech. We have freedom of the press. We have religious freedom. All of those freedoms allow us to openly advocate for just laws and preservation of life and human flourishing. You you can go outside and you can tell people truth. You can make arguments. You can write letters to the editor. You can knock on doors. You can campaign. You can vote. You can do all of those things and you're not supposed to get arrested for it. Uh, That may change one day, but it hasn't yet. If it does change, well, we're going to keep speaking truth, right? We should absolutely pursue every means available to us. Now, this is not simple. It may sound simple, but you know it's not, because there's never been a perfect candidate and there's never been a candidate who represents 100% all the views of Jesus. And so we're often having to play calculus, aren't we? We're having to balance the ledger. Okay, well, this candidate has this and this candidate has that. And it's never perfect. You know, I think about this issue right now. You know, I I, I was talking to Paul, actually, Sunday at BFG. Some of the pro-life candidates are saying kind of outrageous things about immigration right now. Like they would go to the border and shoot people trying to cross the border. I mean, listen, you can say all you want. Well, I'm going to vote for all the pro life candidates, but I don't know about you. I'm not voting for him, whether he's pro life or not, if he's talking about shooting people at the border. Like, there's just things like that we have to realize. There's not ever just one issue, even if that one issue is glaring, and you may even say the defining issue of our age, which I believe abortion is. There are other issues, but we've we've got to commit to a biblical view of justice and truth, and that leads me to the third point. We must maintain a distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of this world. Church, we aren't of this world. If we are in Christ, we don't belong here. We are citizens of heaven, and we must maximize what it means to be citizens of a better kingdom. The problem is that once we get involved in politics it's easy to get sucked in. We start reading the news. We start reading the headlines. We start listening to the podcasts and the late night talking heads. And before long, we're sucked into the narrative. Before long, we're outraged. Before long, we're angry. Before long, we're posting things that, 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 are, that are mean and unthoughtful on social media. And church, this is why the church is so vital. Because the church reminds us that this kingdom of this world is not ultimate. The church reminds us of the word, right? It is here. The church has been entrusted with preserving the word, with guarding right doctrine, with making sure that the people, the the members of the church are walking in step with the word. And when we open the word, what do we see there? We see that Jesus's way is not the way of this world. Jesus wins by losing, jesus conquers by dying jesus prevails by suffering if you want to accomplish something in the world you don't suffer and die you dominate right you grasp the power you do whatever it takes to 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 be in control What we have to understand is that that's not the way of Jesus. And what we also have to understand is that if our nation falls tomorrow, that does not mean one thing. It does not say one thing about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The United States could fall into the sea this very instant, and none of God's promises are threatened by that. And we've got to understand that. We don't conquer as Christians by political power. We as the church don't need the world's success. The church has thrived in context of martyrdom. What, what did the early church say? The, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That Often the church has grown in spite of the suffering. Maybe even because of it. Because it, it, it filtered out. Artificial forms of Christianity. It showed people that we really believe this. We're willing to suffer for it. Revelation. I just want to share this with you. I don't have time to go into the context and and really kind of, you know how revelation is anyway. Context isn't ever simple to understand. But Revelation 12, 10, and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation is and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the the witnesses, the martyrs, they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we conquer as Christians? By being faithful witnesses even unto death. That's how we conquer. We conquer. We win the victory by dying. That's the Bible. That's what Jesus showed us. So I mentioned at the beginning that I was going to talk quickly about this kind of new movement called Christian Nationalism. And you have to be careful when you talk about Christian nationalism because liberals think Christian nationalism is any Christian who's trying to be involved in politics. And that's not what we're saying. As a Christian, you should be taking your Christianity to the public square and you should be advocating for just laws based on Christianity. You absolutely should be. But there's something else brewing that's properly called Christian nationalism. And the argument goes like this. Clearly, clearly the, the, the American liberal um, government and ideology has failed. Classical liberalism has failed. And how do we know it's failed? Because now we've got secular authoritarianism that's leading us to drag queens reading children's books at libraries and woke identity politics. So what we really need to do now in response to this secular authoritarianism is we need to drive it out with good old-fashioned Christian authoritarianism. We need to say, you are getting out of here And the drag queens are out and the cross is in. So there's a growing chorus of voices saying that the government needs to go back to establishing Christianity. The government needs to go back to making the nation Christian, forcing our way in. Traditionally, we've always believed, or not always, but most Christians in history have believed that governments are not supposed to enforce the first four commandments, just the the last six, right? In other words, the government's not supposed to make sure that everybody's worshiping right. The government focuses on the, the commandments about living together and making sure we don't murder and steal and the things that have to do with societal harmony, And we've gone over all the reasons why this doesn't work, and I would just refer you to the previous talks. I mean, mainly... This doesn't work because of the gospel, because God isn't about coercing people to follow Jesus. God is about changing hearts with his spirit when the gospel is proclaimed. And so you can have a government all you want that's trying to enforce Christianity. That is not going to make that nation full of Christians. It's going to make that nation full of fake Christians. And if you don't believe me, go look over in Europe and all of those countries that have established churches, and you tell me how Christianity is doing over there. How's Christianity doing in England right now? Those churches are turning into pubs. What's interesting to me is that the people who are making these Christian nationalism arguments never seem to be really interested in missions. They never seem to be interested in going and sending missionaries to suffer to the ends of the earth so that people will believe the gospel. They're only interested in pulling the levers of power of getting the right person in office so that we can push our way in. And that's church. It's just not the way of Christ. It's not the way of Christ. I mean, do I even need chapters and verses to make that argument? I mean, the New Testament, we have it. I mean, think about this. Think about Peter. Right? When Jesus is arrested, what is the one disciple that fights back? Peter. You remember what he does? He picks up the sword. And what does Jesus say? He rebukes him. He says, that's not the way we're doing this. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. We, we don't rely on the sword to enforce Christianity. We can't ever compromise the gospel in that way. Fourth, commit, and this is where it hits home. We're going to start hitting home. Commit to speaking the truth no matter the consequences. Listen, this is what we've lost right now. We have a bunch of a bunch of evangelical Christians who say they believe the Bible who are trading in conspiracy theories who are arguing that elections are stolen why because a serial adulterer told them that that's what they need to do There's something called truth And and we don't get to define what it is. It's subjective. It stands outside of us. So listen to me. If, If we as Christians don't guard the truth and speak the truth, how can we expect anyone to listen to us when we try to tell them gospel truth? Now, because what we tend to do is we go, but look at how they're lying over there but it doesn't matter if they're lying. That doesn't justify us lying in response. We are loyal to Jesus, and Jesus calls us to be loyal to truth-telling, even if it means our side loses. Think about this with me. The Southern Baptist Convention had, in the last five years, it has come out that the, that, From the top down, there has been widespread cover-up of sexual abuse in churches. Should we, as a Southern Baptist church, say, no, we don't believe it, that's not true. That's just liberal propaganda. What does that say to victims who experience that abuse? If we're not willing to own it and say, yes, that's the truth... And we're going to have to face it. Even though we might not be personally culpable, we are part of a tradition that is associated with that. And so we have to say, yes, that really happened, even if it means our reputation takes a hit, because you will never be rewarded by Jesus for lying, for not speaking truth. We don't get to bend the truth to benefit, benefit our own political side. We have to be equal opportunity offenders. That means when the people I voted for do something horrendous, I have to be willing to say that's horrendous. Even as I say to the people I never would have voted for, that what they're doing is always horrendous if I believe that. Right? We have to call it what it is. We call out falsehood and we call out unrighteousness wherever it exists. Fifth love your nation. Love your nation. Love America. If you're an American, it is possible to be a Christian and a patriot. And, and I don't want that to get lost. And whether you're American and if you're here today and you were from Brazil or somewhere else, I'd say the same thing. Love your nation. Abraham Lincoln believed that America existed to be a beacon of equality, freedom, and flourishing in the world, and oftentimes America has been that. But you know as well as I do, sometimes America hasn't been that. America has certainly played a unique and unmatched role in the world. It's a good thing for us to recognize that, to be thankful that we're in this great nation to be proud of where we're from, to be proud to be related to people who have sacrificed for our freedoms. All of that is good. America is exceptional in many ways. But even as we talk about being proud to be Americans, we, we, never, say, we never let that lead us to not be able to critique where we're from. We should also be willing to look back and say, yeah, there's some terrible blights in our history too. We stole people. And brought them over here and enslaved them and got rich off of their backs. That really happened. Jeremiah 29, 7. Remember, Jeremiah is, is the prophet of Israel telling Israel how to live when they go off into, into Babylon. And he says, when you go there, Israel seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And that applies to us because the New Testament reminds us that we are also exiles. That This isn't our ultimate home. And so we should seek the welfare of the city, of the nation, of the place where God has placed us, of the community. And we should seek its welfare whether the person we elected is in the Oval Office or whether the person we didn't want is there. We should keep seeking the welfare of this city, of this nation. Three more. These will be quick. Start where you are. I once had a church member tell me that he was ashamed that not here. <laughs> because y'all are like, who was it? Somebody not here anymore. No, I wouldn't tell the story. But I had a church member in, in Lexington... He was a new church member, and he said, I can't believe we don't have a door-to-door evangelism ministry. He was mad about it. And I said, look, there's people sharing the gospel all the time, and you don't necessarily have to have a door-to-door ministry to be an evangelistic church, and he just wouldn't get over it. No, we should be going door-to-door. And so I finally just got fed up, and I said, I almost said his name. Uh, I'm not going to say his name. I said, hey, man, um... When's the last time you knocked on a door and shared the gospel with somebody? And I have to hand it to him. At least he was honest. Because I had him then. And he said, I don't typically do that. And I said, yeah, exactly. You see, this is a really important principle, church. We can't go around acting like we're interested in all these political ideas if we don't have any personal stakes in the game. You want to tell me, yeah, I care a lot about abortion. Then I need to ask you, what are you doing to minister to single moms? What are you doing for orphans in the world? You're going to say, well, I'm really interested in immigration reform. Well, how many refugees or immigrants have you welcomed into your home? You know, it doesn't do you any good to rail against sexual morality in the culture if you go home every night and watch porn. As it doesn't do us any good to talk about the breakdown of traditional marriage if we're not committed to our spouses. Politics always starts where we are in our own lives. You see, a lot of us love to talk about all the problems and all the solutions, and it's only just a theory, and it's far removed from our daily lives. But if you want to be involved in politics, love your wife. Love your husband. Be committed where you are. Minister to people who are in need. Pursue just, righteous, peace-producing lives with everyone in your immediate circle. Seventh, Evaluate policies and laws according to the whole counsel of God. Don't be selective, in other words. Remember, the goal of government is to administer justice, to protect life, to secure the conditions necessary for human beings to flourish, so that the church can have a platform to preach the gospel and announce God's kingdom. And if that's why governments exist, then where do we turn to look for what does justice and human flourishing look like? Well, justice and human flourishing is defined for us in scriptures. We know as Christians that LGBTQ plus whatever else you want to add to that, that those policies do not lead to human flourishing. We know they don't. And I can make that argument from the Bible, and I can make that argument without the Bible too, because it's just common sense. You can just look at the evidence. The human race can't even be fruitful and multiply. It can't. Like, it physically can't. If LGBTQ prevailed in the land, we would make ourselves extinct. So, so we recognize that, that that does not lead to flourishing. It does not lead to justice. But, but let me get a little bit closer to home. Let's talk about immigration. Immigration. Let's talk about poor relief. You see, those are issues that conservatives have often neglected. And yet those are issues that the Bible tells us that God cares a whole lot about. The refugee, the immigrant, the poor, those are all over Scripture. And so if we're going to sit here and and talk about, well, we're going to care about what God cares about, well, we got to care about more than just abortion, You have to start there, but there's a whole lot more that God cares about. We can't be selective, and we certainly can't allow the political party that we're loyal to to tell us which biblical things we can ignore and which things we need to pay attention to. We have to pay attention to the whole counsel of God. And then finally, the last thing, never ever disregard the fruits of the Spirit. Which traits should characterize our political involvement and in discourse? Well, you have nine fruits in Genesis chapter 5. I want to talk about two of them in closing. The first one is gentleness. Jesus is described as having a gentle and humble heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus' gentleness was not weakness or passivity. Jesus was not weak and passive. Jesus spoke the truth, but Jesus was also willing to listen. He spoke kindly. He didn't unnecessarily offend and hurt people. Gentleness implies having a patient tone and demeanor, showing respect to people that we don't agree with. Gentleness must be a part of our discourse as Christians, even if it's not happening on Capitol Hill. Because it's not, by the way. In fact, if you want to do an experiment, go to Galatians 5. I don't have time to do it tonight. But go to Galatians 5 and read the works of the flesh and then contrast it with the fruits of the Spirit and you tell me which set characterizes American political discourse. It's the first one. And then the second fruit of the Spirit and the last one, the last thing I'm going to say tonight is peace. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Christian, do you understand that if you are in Christ, the God who created the universe is for you? He's on your side. Jesus accomplished salvation for us. And listen, nothing can undo that. The worst president in the world can't undo that. Hitler couldn't undo that. You think about the worst figures in history. None of them could undo what Jesus accomplished for his people. The nations may rage, but our God sits in the heavens and laughs. We live in the hope of the resurrection because of that because of the hope of the resurrection we have to live in this world with confidence we have to reject the fear and the worry and the paranoia that characterizes our culture and we have to replace it with a demeanor of peace that is derived from knowing that we are justified in Jesus Christ My future's secure. Your future's secure. The promises of God can never be undone. We don't buy into these narratives that, oh no, everything's falling apart. The whole world's going to hell. There's nothing we can do now. We can't buy into that. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. Jesus has given us a better, more sure word. We've got to live in it. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, even as we close this, this semester and the.